Uh, it's a very uh, important and admirable occupation. Um, if you have a theory, if you don't have a theory, you're wasting your time. And if you do have a theory, that's fine. Let it be a source of surprise. Um, defend it um, as well as you can, but be willing to say it's wrong uh, if you get to that point. Um, but everybody should be working with some set of theoretical assumptions. Welcome to The Story of Language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition, and culture. My name is Christian Saunders, and I am an English teacher, and throughout this series, I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this bonus episode, we talk about the state of modern linguistics, including the effects of the replication crisis, scientific fraud, anglocentrism, and how the underappreciated work of Charles Sanders Peirce might offer a universal theory of how language works. If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Story of Language, or you can send us an email at storyoflanguage at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy this bonus episode of The Story of Language. Are you a believer that a messy desk is a productive desk? Because my desk right now is just... A disaster oh yeah yeah well i i don't know if i'm a believer in it but that's the state of my desk <laughs> uh you know i remember i used to have a the provost at bentley when i was the dean his desk was always spotless and his secretary would come over to my office and she would say mike keeps his desk a lot neater and i said yeah he doesn't think about as many things as i do <laughs> <laughs> he never you know he he was a good mathematician and he would write uh he would be co-author with with people by doing the statistics, but he didn't have like this big research program going on or anything. Yeah. Okay. So, well, I, it's probably true. I mean, um, you know, if you're dealing with a lot of things, they have to be on your desk. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, and I had, because I was Dean, I had a suite of offices. And so I had a conference room that I never kept anything out. So I would, anytime somebody wanted to meet with me, I would just leave my messy desk and go sit out there and talk to them. But I, when I was at Disneyland, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I remember looking at, they had Walt Disney's offices and he had a working office and a reception office. And his reception office was just spotless. The desk had nothing on it and everything. And his working office, he had a lot of stuff on it. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great, a, great little, um, a great little idea for any kind of professional. Yeah, yeah, you have, have two offices. I, I was wondering if we could actually talk a little bit about that kind of world, about the academic world. Because, you know, that science at the moment is suffering from a, a replication crisis. Um, I mean, what, what, what do you think of, of, of the situation? Well, um, I was involved. Um, we had one of the, the biggest cases of fraud in the history of academics at Bentley. The, the guy who was ranked the number one uh, accountancy researcher in the world, we got an anonymous letter uh, that his, uh, 
his research couldn't be replicated. And so we started to uh, look into it and we found out that of course it can't be replicated, the data were made up. Um, so he had to retract, I forget how many articles and then he, he no longer is with the university and we had to bring in people to talk about it. So the two reasons that um, you can't replicate thing, at least to replicate research, one is fraud. And unfortunately, that's a that's a problem, and that's not a trivial problem. And the other is uh, sort of half-baked ideas. You know, I also knew very well, or relatively well, Mark Hauser. You know, he was one of my big critics, and he used to tell people that I probably made up some of my data on Peter Ha. Well, then it turns out that he was um, fired from Harvard, the only tenured professor in in Harvard's entire history you know, over 300 years to be fired for manipulating data. You know, he was doing research on, uh, on monkeys, a, very, a couple of different species of monkeys, and uh, he had a, uh, you know, number of graduate students. He was a very successful grant getter, and um, he would tell the students, the monkey's doing this, but they would have to sign off on the protocols saying that they had seen the monkey do this, and in one experiment, several students said uh, they didn't feel comfortable doing that because they didn't share his assessment of what the monkey was doing in the video. And they didn't think he was doing that, which was crucial to his experiment. So he sent e threatening emails and, and very angry emails, and uh, he did it with the wrong students, you know. They, they, uh, they turned him in. And so one day, uh, Harvard Security shows up in his lab and impounds all of his computers and everything he had in the lab. And uh, I saw him right after that. We were both speaking at Princeton. And uh, we, we got in the elevator to go down. And he was, he was leading critics, the critics of me. He was a huge critic. And so he didn't really want to talk much, which made me want to talk more. So I would say, hey, how you doing, Mark? How's it going? And, uh, and then I heard the rumors of this. And I told a couple of people, and they said, Oh no, that couldn't possibly happen. He's he he was so ethical. He would never do that. And then he was fired. Wow. Um, and uh, so you know, you go from the pinnacle of success, a full professorship at Harvard, and not just a professorship, but one of the most famous professors in your field in the world and at Harvard. Uh, and uh, I mean, he was the one who was responsible, partly responsible for getting Steve Pinker hired at Harvard. And uh, he wrote a brilliant book on animal communication and he became a huge advocate of Chomsky and he's the one who wrote with Chomsky the article on recursion. So right after he got, um, right after he was dismissed, he sent me an email asking if the Peter Ha had a word for schadenfreude. Uh, <laughs> and, and do they? <laughs> and uh, No, they don't. Uh, although they, they do laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a problem. So, so for the average run-of-the-mill, non-fraud kind of person, there is a huge amount of pressure to publish fast. And if you've got the numbers, and they're slightly off, there's a temptation to tweak them for some people, or to claim that you have data that you don't have, or claim that the data is almost like what you say. You know, a lot of it is just the experiments aren't, aren't that well designed. There's a whole range of reasons why an experiment could fail to replicate. Like, like for example, when I was working on the grammar of Wadi, uh, Barbara Kern had a series of sentences 
that she said were grammatical wadi, and I just couldn't believe it. They were the weirdest things I ever saw. I just said, I've never seen a language that has anything like this. This is just, she said, if you don't believe me, uh, you know, go to the people and find out. Because we were in Porto Velho in Brazil, and uh, the actual wadi community, about 2,000 people, was, you know, five hours by car and then a, a six-hour boat right away. So I said, okay, I'm going to go there and find out. So I went there, and when I was looking for boats to go to the community, a whole boat of people from the community came. So they spoke Portuguese, and all the Wadis, most of the Wadis speak Portuguese. So I sat with them, and I said, can I ask you about some sentences? And they said, yeah, sure. And they were correcting my transcription, because I had written them down phonetically as best I could, and they they were all literate, and they said, these are all spelled wrong, you know, but... Uh, because, uh, you know, they were looking at the phonetic writing, they knew how to write their language. Um, so I, I gave them the sentences and they said, oh, that's terrible. We, we don't say anything like that. You can't say that. And I said, aha, I knew you couldn't. And they said, who told you you could say that? And I said, Barbara. Oh, well, if Barbara said it, we probably do. Let's think about this. And so a bunch of people started thinking about it and they said, oh, yes, if we have this context and they came up with the context, then we would say that. And so um, that's the other side of replication um, is not having all the original conditions of the first experiment. We have to recreate the entire environment for that to happen. Replication is a serious problem in experimental sciences and uh, especially in psychology. That's where we're getting, you know, in, in the so-called, you know, non-hard sciences. I mean, you get them in the hard sciences as well, like they were in biology, but uh, with Mark Hauser, but that was fraud. And, and a lot in psychology and may not so much be fraud as simply drawing too many conclusions from too few data. I, I was sitting with a group of philosophers after some well-known person gave a talk. We, had, we were just sitting around talking, having a couple of drinks, and a guy, another philosopher who was at the talk came in and said, it's like the banking crisis all over again, leveraging far too many conclusions on far too little data. Yeah, I mean, it, is, it, is, it has parallels, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have... You have uh, Wish, wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is, uh, is a serious issue. One of the reasons that Charles Sanders Peirce worked so hard and so long and his ideas stand up so well um, is that, you know, he, he really was not trying to impress anybody. He didn't have a job. <laughs> he, he wasn't publishing. He was solving problems. So he had no reason to manipulate. But when you put somebody in a situation where the more experiments they can do in a year and publish on, the more money they're gonna make, there, there's a strong temptation that comes in. You know, In my own uh, situation right now, writing about uh, purse, uh, writing about other things, I don't have that kind of pressure. In fact, I never felt that kind of pressure because when you do field research, you, know, you, you wanna publish a lot. Well, I guess actually field research, you know, who's gonna know if you make up the data unless you've got other people working on the language. And that, that can also be, be a problem. You know, like, like I think every grammar, you know, if, if a grammar is published or an article about a language and it agrees with our theoretical positions, we don't question it. I mean, that's the practice in linguistics. If somebody says, 
they have relative clauses in this language and they work just like this and you say, oh, that's the way relative clauses should work. Fine, next language. But maybe they don't work like that. I've gone into to village after village when I was um, a linguistics consultant for the missionary organization, SIL, to help people with their analyses. And I found analysis after analysis that as far as I could tell, had very little to do with the facts. It wasn't fraud, it was just people trying to act like they had figured it out when they hadn't. It's the same thing with Peter Ha. Um, when I went to work on Peter Ha, I was told by Steve Sheldon, who was the one who had preceded me, don't pay attention to anything I've written, I'm sure it's all wrong. Um, so I ignored it. I mean, I did what he said, I ignored it and I started from scratch. And then after I had my own opinions, I started comparing. And um, a lot of it, I could see why he thought what he thought, but I had very different analyses of what was going on. And so the question is, and this is good for field research, if you have two analyses, how do you choose which one's the best? There's also how to interpret the data. So the first, there's, do you have honest data? Are you doing fraud? Second, do you have reliable data? Did you sort of fudge or did you miss a few things when you designed your experiment? And then uh, another thing is, is it just wishful thinking? Um, you know, this book that came out, um, Recursion Across Domains, that Ted Gibson and I reviewed in the journal Language, starts off with a horrible experiment. You know, it's supposed, this experiment is supposed to prove that Peter Ha has recursion. And I don't suspect that the guy committed any fraud whatsoever. I'm not, you know, because I, I, I really don't know his motives, but the, when Ted and I were talking about it, I said, I don't think this shows anything because you can do the same thing in English. He said, no, it's much worse than that. There's no thesis here. There's nothing that can be tested. He didn't do his homework. So in our review, there's a devastating um, assessment of that experiment, but it was written by Ted, who is, you know, I, I mean, He's the experimental psychologist uh, of, of the pair of us. You know, it's what I had thought all along. In fact, I had said this to people. This, can't, this experiment cannot show what it claims to show, but it was being cited all over because it fit people's biases. Uh, it showed what they wanted to know about Peter Ha, which is Dan's wrong and the Peter Ha do have recursion, but it doesn't show it at all. It doesn't show anything like it. And that's and that's, so that's another example of something that can't be. And then the data that they got from the Peter Ha, they don't speak the language, and they had flown a Peter Ha speaker who doesn't speak Portuguese, along with somebody else who purports to be a Peter Ha speaker but isn't, who does speak Portuguese, and they had the two of them there. And they, they would work sometimes just with the Peter Ha fellow, you know, just through gestures and trying to do monolingual fieldwork, as I have uh, done many times. In fact, that's how I work still with the Peter Ha. Um, because I speak the language now, it's not, you know, it's monolingual, but I speak the language. But um, they were getting things and they were just putting them down, and yet they really had nothing to do with the structures they were saying they represented. Yes, these words did come out of the person's mouth, but why would they come out of their mouth? And the other question is, why wouldn't they come out of their mouth? I mean, a lot of times you can't find speakers who will say the thing that you know that they've said. Like I have in my data books, sentences that are perfectly natural. I didn't speak the language. They're, they're from my first years in the Peter Ha. And so I know they say these things because these are naturally recorded, spontaneous utterances, parts of stories. And when I repeat it back and I give the context, they think it's fine. 
But then if I take, a, if I try to create an artificial sentence that's structured just like the one in the text, but use it outside of the text, oh, we don't talk like that. Uh, so, so why wouldn't they say it? Well, maybe they don't say that particular sentence, but maybe it's because it didn't come out of a natural text. Um, so all of these things um, are confounding factors that can lead um, over-eager people to conclude things too quickly about their experiments apart from fraud. Yeah, and, and do you, because you mentioned that, that there's a lot of pressure, and I imagine that probably if you're in a, in a really illustrious university, there's even more pressure. And it seems that the pressure comes maybe f not just from the reputation of the university, but also the pressure to basically make money. I mean, do, do you think that, that there's a kind of a conflict of interest between, well, basically bringing money into education is just a bad thing? Well, you can't do the research without the money. University, whether it's Harvard or Bentley or whatever university, does not have the money to fund the research. No university can. In fact, if you're funding all your research by the university's money, you're basically taking the students' money for education and using it for the faculty's research. And that's sort of unfair to the students. So to do serious research, you need serious money. And there are funding agents set up for this. Once you become the director of a lab, like, like when I was, to use a very small scale example, when I was at, at the University of Manchester in England, at one time I had, I was involved in, in the principal investigator of over $3 million in grants. I had four postdocs, I had a couple of different offices, I had a secretary and I paid for all of this out of my grants. And I had a phonetics laboratory and everybody had assignments and people were traveling to Brazil and traveling to Europe to do this and do that. And then I realized, you know, I got to write more grants. <laughs> and so, so suddenly, and you find this at MIT uh, and Harvard and all the top research universities, a successful faculty member who's directing a lab is just constantly writing grants. You know, every time I, I talk to uh, Ted Gibson at MIT, he's under a grant deadline. He's writing grants and he's got to support his students and he has a great lab and he's got all these brilliant students and they have to be supported to do their research. So the, uh, the fact that he can do any research on his own amazes me. <laughs> so he's doing it. Well, that's what I'm thinking. My God. Yeah, yeah. So he's there from, you know, Ted is, is one of these people who works, you know, if it's a 16 hour day, it was probably a light day. Wow. Um, you know, he just is working all the time and he has, his students do research. So what you find, if you see a lab like psychology or, or cognitive sciences, the, the last name author is the director of the lab. And their, paper, their name has to be on every paper. So they have these huge numbers of publications because every paper that anybody writes in their lab, they look it over, Ted looks it over very carefully. The idea that one of Ted's experiments would not be replicable is, is unlikely to me because he's so careful. He looks over every word and when we write things together, he is never, you know, it's frustrating because he just, if he doesn't, you know, he just reads every word and he says, I really don't think that's as clear as we, we could make it. Um, so, so yes, replicability is a problem and I've seen both sides, the far end uh, fraud side 
And people really suffer from that. The government agencies are basically stolen from the university's reputation. The pressures that lead to success in academe also lead to replicability crises. But in, in most linguistics, in most linguistics, there's no replicability crisis because there's nothing of any empirical. It doesn't matter what you find; that it's not a problem. Um, <laughs> So that's a serious problem in, in some forms of theoretical linguistics. Well, I mean, do, do you mean because because of what you were talking about before, about how environments change, or because maybe when it comes to things which which are really soft in the soft sciences, maybe they become more philosophy, so there's, there isn't really right and wrong, there's just interpretation? Is that is that what you mean? Uh, to some degree, but there's also the fact that if I say that... Uh, John bought Bill a book is ungrammatical today. I mean, there, are, there. Are, if you go through the literature, there are famous cases of examples that were crucially ungrammatical becoming grammatical in the course of the development of the theory. The language didn't change. Um, it just turned out that these were always grammatical, and now the theory is getting around to recognizing that. And, um, um, but, but people can strain people strain to understand what you're saying so it's easy for people to accept this you you get them to accept an example that they would never use um so linguistics is not a hard science i mean basically i'm just saying linguistics is part of the humanities and uh, and a lot of it is no more even though it comes with tree diagrams and it has um uh what is supposedly rigorous uh, theory uh, it isn't I remember we had a physicist at the University of Pittsburgh who was the dean, and he had directed, before he became uh, dean at Pittsburgh, he had been the director of the Fermi Lab in Chicago, you know, and I remember mentioning to him once in a discussion, we want to hire a theoretical phonologist, and he spit out his coffee laughing. And he said, what in the world is a theoretical phonologist? <laughs> so tell me, what are the mathematical formulas that ground phonology? You know, and he was going into this, and I, I said, well, that's what it's called, and I'm not debating you the, with you the title, but he, he had a certain amount of, uh, of right on his side. Yeah. I think what, what's interesting to me is <clears throat> what you are talking about before, about how a speaker will accept so many things as being correct if they sort of, um, if they take a moment to think about it, because like a big part of language is that, uh, automatic repair, like we, you know, we look for meaning rather than, rather than correct form. I mean, like those famous examples of, you know, they'll, they'll, you read a sentence and it's got the word the in it twice, but your brain just automatically skips it. You don't even know, you don't even know it's there. Right, right. And, and so people are charitable to other people. We're trying to understand what they're saying because that's the way communication works. If, Language is not a computer program and we're not computers. A computer will spit bad sentences out without a moment's hesitation. But humans, we're trying to see the cultural context, we're trying to see the discourse context. And the earlier example I gave of the Wadi, in isolation, they all rec uh, rejected these sentences. But when they took time to think of the source and realize, oh, I, she's trustworthy, and, they, and they, it wasn't just me, a silly, person they didn't even know to asking them if they could say these things and they created the context okay now it's all right so it, it goes both ways sometimes we say we don't talk like that 
you know, and there are famous examples. I remember conference, I've been to conferences where a speaker will say, um, actually, we don't say this in our language. And then the next sentence, they're giving a sentence just like that. And the whole audience breaks out laughing. Um, and the person just stands there thinking. And I saw this happen in Brazil more than once, but there were a couple of hilarious examples in Brazil by a really, really smart Brazilian linguist. Uh, well, I mean, and this this sort of brings brings me to, because the, the, the main thing we're going to talk about today is grammar. And part of what I'm curious about is the, how grammar ties into research and about how, you know, how research can be difficult to replicate, but also how maybe a majority of linguistics research, I don't know the percentages, but I would imagine more than three quarters is on what's called weird people, right? So Western, educated, industrial, rich, and democratic. And so I wonder how you feel that that affects basically everything that we think we know about language. There are a lot of people who do field research in all theories. So it would be inaccurate to say that, for example, Chomsky's theory is based strictly on weird cultures. However, on a, in another sense, it is entirely accurate to say that because he built the basic theory on English and maybe one or two other European languages, teeny little things like Italian, you know. Um, and, uh, and then people go off to test his ideas in lots of languages. The general assumption, if you're doing research in a particular theory, especially when it's dominated by a personality as powerful as Chomsky, is that who am I to say that these data that I've just collected out here in the jungle contradict and falsify the great master of linguistics? Uh, so most people will show how the theory can be tweaked to fit it. Uh, so in a sense, even though you're getting research on all these other languages, the basic core of the theory is based on English. And that definitely affects the way we look at the rest of the world. When, when Robert Van Balen started role and reference grammar, his basic question was, what would a theory of language look like if it was developed by a Navajo or by a Walbitty or somebody else who didn't um, wasn't an English speaker. So he tried to come up with a theory like that. And, and that kind of attention to real cross-cultural, cult, cross cross-linguistic differences leads to a, a more semantic-based theory rather than a surface syntax-based theory. I wanted to, to talk about some of these theories because obviously there's so many different ways that you can describe language. And um, do you think that similar to the way that physicists are kind of looking for the, the theory of everything, um, do, do you think that there is some kind of like universal explanation for how language works? Or, or maybe it's just too, you know, maybe it's too different depending on the different language. The universal explanation for how human language works is um, in, in one sense quite trivial. It's human brains interacting in human societies. That's how language works. But I really, I, I believe that, and I never thought this before, but more and more I've come to realize that the basis of human language is, is the signs, that are the signs we use to communicate. And so symbols and the theory of symbols, 
really underlies uh, language, and that's applicable to any language. So Persis semiotics to me is the closest thing we have got to how language works. And um, he's ignored entirely by modern linguists. Um, part of that, in fact, a large part of that is because he's really hard to read. Um, not because he's a bad writer, but because it's his papers were left in such disarray and they're not fully organized today. Um, you know, when I go, when I show up at Harvard uh, to go through his papers at Houghton Library, which seems like a never ending quest, I've, I've photographed 30,000 so far and I have about 70,000 to go. And then I got to read them. Um, there's draft after draft after draft, handwritten of the same paper. And sometimes they're a little mixed up. So which paper goes with which draft? And that's something that Purse scholars have been working on for a hundred years and more, you know, more than a hundred years. Uh, he died in 1914. Nobody touched his papers for years. And then they started, nobody had the energy or the funds to study them. And it's, it's really only been since uh, Indiana University, uh, Purdue University of Indianapolis, IUPUI, Ui Pui or something, I don't know. But that's uh, <laughs> how, uh, it's only since they started the Purse Edition Project organizing his papers and, and some early pioneers who waded through those papers that we've been able to see what he was trying to write. Ironically, Chomsky calls Purse, or he has called Purse in some other places, his favorite philosopher. But there's nothing of Purse in his writings. I mean, almost nothing. Ex there are tree structures. Purse actually was the one who developed graphic representations of language, but it was semantics, not syntax. So I think we're a long ways. I mean, you have to do two things. You have to be convinced yourself that this is the theory that explains it all. And second, uh, you have to convince other linguists that it does that. Everybody is looking at different languages and everybody, Chomsky was able to unify the theory because to unify the field, it, you know, it lasted for a few years. It's certainly not unified now, but but for the golden age of generative uh, grammar, Chomsky in theory, from about 1960 to uh, roughly 1968, people thought we had solved most of the major problems and it would just be a filling in of details. And when you go back and read those early papers, forgetting about everything that came afterwards, they're, they're really attractive and powerful. And you know, when you read them for the first, I had studied some linguistics before I first encountered Chomsky and when I first did encounter Chomsky, I thought, oh my goodness, this is it. Everything just leaves off and he takes it to the end. Uh, every other theory is just silly. You know, you can't, you, I mean, they just, they really don't look impressive at all compared to what he can do. He speaks with such power and authority and the ideas are so clear and so testable, which um, turned out to be the problem. Uh, <laughs> yes, they could be tested and uh, none of them really held up. There's not a single one, not a single idea from from all those years that has held up. People will insist otherwise, but I, I can't think of a single one that's that's held up. So we, we're nowhere near a, a unifying theory, no, nowhere like it. In fact, I've heard uh, some people um, in in cognitive science departments say that the problem reminds me of the, the quote from Braveheart, you know, the problem with Scotland is the Scots. <laughs> they say that the problem with uh, linguistics are linguists. You know, if we just get linguists to leave language alone, we might be able to figure it out. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, 
it's interesting that Chomsky would describe Peirce as a philosopher. The the work that he does is very much more like a like a hard science. Um, whereas, well, I suppose this this is the question: is does a theory that explains language does it become more philosophy than 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 kind of hard theory? You know. Well, Peirce was a philosopher, but he was primarily a mathematician and a logician, and uh, you know when you when you you read what he wrote, the the most amazing thing is that everything he says follows from something else he said. It's like this, and and he derives it all. He doesn't just throw out a hypothesis and now let's test it. He does test what he's saying, but he. Uh, some of the things he says about language are logically closed. There's nothing to add to them. It can't be any other way. I mean, somebody could test it, you could test it all you want, but uh, then uh, the entire logic of the system is broken. And, and that's, unlikely, that's unlikely to happen. I mean, he has, he has proved a number of theorems about language. Um, as I'm reading about the history of logic to write eventually the chapter on his uh, logic there there's this constant uh discussion about who invented logic uh Gottlieb Frege or uh Charles Sanders Peirce uh Frege published his logic in 1879 and Peirce's logic is best known from a paper in 1885 um so people say well then Frege got it first although they're both given credit because they invented it independently I mean, there was no internet in those days, and uh, the mail internationally wasn't that fast. Uh, so there's no reason that. But then, you know, we know there's another paper of Peirce in 1870, nine years before Frege, in which he lays out most of the principles that he then refined tremendously in 1885. So um, I think it's fair to say Peirce invented, he was the first one to discover quantifiers, like for all X, it is such that, you know, Y, X, or for, and there exists an X such that, you know, the existential and the universal quantifiers were invented by Peirce, uh, not by Frege. And um, Peirce's system of logic was much easier to use. Russell, who, who sort of ignored Peirce, Bertrand Russell, and, and cited Frege in his famous work with Alfred North Whitehead, Principia Mathematica, they used Peirce's logic, not, not Frege's. Um, but they had different objects. Frege was inventing logic. I mean, they're both am amazing intellectual achievements, some of the greatest intellectual achievements in the history of the world. Uh, for Frege, that's what he's known for. For Peirce, that was a sideline. He just invented logic because he was doing some things that needed it. But, um, but Frege invented logic to better understand arithmetic and mathematics. Peirce felt that Logic came out of mathematics, not the other way around, which made him, a, but he invented it to study the human brain, human cognition, human reasoning. So where um, Frege went off into axiom and axioms and theorems, uh, Peirce developed something called existential graphs in which he used the principles he had learned as the first summa cum laude graduate of chemistry from Harvard University in its history. Um, he used principles of chemistry to develop um, graphs of the meaning of English predicates um, and showed that this is how any predicate had to be structured. 
So he basically came up with tree structures of semantics um, from which you could test and prove your ideas. Um, and they work for mathematics as well as logic. Uh, and, and they work for language too. If, 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 if a universal theory of language, let, let's, let's say that if a universal theory of language was as, as basic as you know, human brains interacting um and and maybe you know on top of that you have maybe a theory of of signs and symbols and and indexes um you know do do we need kind of a higher level you know theory on top of that for each language like it could be role and reference grammar or maybe uh, uh construction grammar or something there are these um, constructed languages like um, log, uh, like Loglan, right? The logical language, which <clears throat> you know doesn't have verbs, because linguists need maybe they need more meat. You know, if they're going to talk about you know language, they need they need to really get into the into the very detail. I mean, do we need we need these these bigger theories, right? Well, I wouldn't call them bigger theories. I would call them much smaller theories. And yeah, we do need them. Um, you need theories of phonetics, you need theories of phonology, you need theories of grammar. I would call it grammar instead of syntax uh, because it's bigger than what most syntacticians think. But say it's a theory of syntax. Yeah, you do need theories of these things, but they're smaller theories. They're far less significant to the overall understanding of language than the theory of meaning. Um, language is about communication, and as long as you want to deny that, like. Chomsky definitely denies that and says that language is a human computational system because when he was developing his theory back in the 50s, computers were just starting to you know, be investigated and the model of the brain as a computer has stuck with him ever since. And it's stuck with a lot of people who work in computers, computer science and cognitive science. Um, I think that's a very bad model. But as I've, as I've argued in Language the Cultural Tool and How Language Began and in Dark Matter of the Mind, grammar is important, but it's a teeny little piece of, of human language and human cognition. Whereas in, in Chomsky's theory and many other theories, it's not just Chomsky, it's made the centerpiece of language. And I think that's a fundamental mistake. As soon as you figure out the basic semantics, then what you're looking for the syntax to provide is how the semantics gets instantiated. And, um, and so the role of the syntax is to tell us how to implement the semantics. Um, and this was the view of um, the so-called generative semanticists in the 70s. The first really big breakdown and challenge to Chomsky's theory, it, it was considered erroneously, but it was still the general wisdom that Chomsky had vanquished all who came before. And he had set up a new way of doing things, uh, behold, I give you the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, um, and in the early, in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, George Lakoff, John Robert Ross, Hadge Ross, Paul Postel, Jim McCauley, and others started saying, wait just a gall darn minute here. If, if there really is a deep structure and the syntax comes from that, then what we really need to understand is the deep structure. The syntax will just follow. And uh, so they used Chomsky's own theory to come up with a theory in which semantics was the core. And so they said the universal uh, base hypothesis that everything comes from the semantics, I think they were on the right track. Today, you don't hear people talk about uh, generative semantics, but the entire movement in linguistics called functionalism 
And even a lot of the work in construction grammar comes out of that original work in generative semantics. Um, and so it's not surprising to see that people who work in, worked in generative semantics, once they've proven to themselves that syntax just isn't that big a deal anymore, they've moved on to other things. You know, George Lakoff writes about politics and metaphorical frames and uh, Jim McCauley unfortunately died, one of the sweetest and most brilliant people to ever have studied language. Hads Ross, who's another one of the most brilliant and sweetest people to have ever studied language, uh, works on poetry. Uh, and, um, and, and these aren't losses. They just realize, hey, you know, there's a lot more to life than syntax. Yeah, well, I mean, um, you know, not being, in, not, being in, in, not being an academic, not being in that world, uh, I definitely see a lot of, you know, when I try to, to, to learn about how these theories might help me as a teacher, you know, to, to sort of describe language to students, um, a lot of it just is so dry and it really goes way over my head and I find it difficult. <laughs> I find it difficult to reconcile how, how a description of language, which, as you said, is so much about communication, how it can be so seemingly, um, I don't know, uh, robotic. Well, I mean, there are various levels at which one can react to that. You know, I remember when, when my uh, children were studying in uh, Brazil at this private school that I put them in, my, my middle daughter was studying nominalization transformations in fourth grade. She was studying Chomsky's theory because this was considered truth. I mean, Chomsky said it, we should start teaching kids this right now. And so they, you know, she's learning Chomsky's theory in fourth grade. I had the best grammar instruction at junior high that could have, I learned the Reed Kellogg diagrams. I learned how to diagram sentences. That's why I went into uh, linguistics as much as anything else. And I turned out it was the only thing at school I was any good at, you know, that I cared about was diagramming sentences. And, and all that did, there wasn't, there's no theory behind those diagrams. They would, you know, if you presented this as a theory of language, people would laugh, but there are a lot of intuitions behind them. And they help you, students need to be able to break down their sentences into their parts to understand the semantics and how the semantics is put together in their language to learn more effective communication. Um, and, and that's what those diagrams did. And that's in a sense, uh, you know, Peirce pioneered in graphic representation of language. So there's definitely a role for it. But if you leave out the human side of communication, if you leave out culture and you try to reify grammar as somehow this mysterious computational system or not mysterious, if you find that word offensive, uh, you know, this beautiful computational system that underlies all of our cognition you know, you're going to be missing something. And Peirce did say that all of cognition is the interpretation of signs. That's all cognition is. He said, we're signs. You're a sign. I'm a sign. And people interpret you. And, you you know, everything is signs. Uh, a tree is a sign to somebody or something. And so he really felt that with his theory of science, he had unified not just language, but all science. And there is a sense in which uh, he did. Something that surprises me um you know, because I didn't grow up speak. I grew up English, native English, monolingual speaker. There are some in the United States who would question your native English, but uh... <laughs> native Australian uh, speaker. <laughs> and um, and you know, so my my sort of my my viewpoint on the 
on on let's say the the world the world of languages is you know was very narrow my whole life and and it shocked me to discover even things that 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 I would consider universal like that all languages have a word for yes or no you know there's most languages don't you know or to discover that languages don't even have left and right they don't use left and right in the same way they have cardinal directions and it's like discovering that not everybody has a penis <laughs> <laughs> There are. It, it basically is. Live in this world. <laughs> it basically is, and you think, and I, and I remember thinking, how can how can a language work if you don't have yes and no? How the hell do you confirm anything or deny anything? But of course, there's so many beautiful and and different ways to do it. Well, that's a, that's a very good uh, illustration. You know, I remember playing football when I was a boy with all my schoolmates, and and one of them. Uh, Mario, you know, they all had names like Mario and Jose and Pedro, which already struck me as, why do they have those names? Uh, and then, you know, Mario would would run out for a pass, and Jose was the quarterback, and Mario would be saying, Mira, Jose, Mira! And I said, what the hell does that mean? You know, so then I knew I needed to learn Spanish. Uh, but hearing it, that was the great advantage of growing up in a bilingual community, was you realize there are multiple ways of saying these things, and it used to frustrate me because some of these kids like who weren't that great at math maybe you know because and when you looked at their home they came from they had to work in the fields literally before they came to school I mean but here they were speaking two languages and that's pretty that's already an intellectual accomplishment in my book you know and I always wondered how do these these people that are so cool and and so good it's you know all my friends they speak two languages and I just speak this dumb old one language, you know, and, uh, but they certainly didn't have the same grammar that I had, you know, they put the adjectives in weird places. And But I mean, can, can you, can you imagine that there might be a language out there, you know, or, or a form of communication, you know, be that maybe sign language or some other way of communication that we can't comprehend. Do you, do you think that there, there's a language out there that could violate some of what you consider to be the basis of language? Um, in in terms of the syntax, I'm pretty jaded as to what a, a language could have. I don't have, there's certain things I do expect and I would be surprised by, you know, I would be surprised if there's, I wouldn't have told you I was surprised that there's a language that doesn't have verbs, but then I work with uh, Sally Thomason uh, at the University of Michigan. We, we were colleagues at Pittsburgh and uh, we worked on the language she does her field work on, Salish, from Montana, which maybe it doesn't have any verbs and nouns uh, as separate classes. This is not something I would have thought before I started reading about Salish languages. Uh, Sapir wrote a paper about one of the Salish languages claiming that it didn't have any vowels, that every vowel that you heard was predictable from the surrounding consonants. So at some deep level, there were no vowels. Um, I think that's wrong, but it was a reasonable hypothesis. So, you know, there's so much variation in the world that we don't see because we're conditioned to see it through the lens of a theory. Um, so I'm not saying theory is bad. We need a theory. One thing a theory does is surprise us. So if my theory says all languages have to have nouns and verbs, and I can't find evidence for nouns and verbs in a language 
that's a huge surprise. That's something to work on. That's something exciting to try to solve. Whereas if I didn't have any opinions and I walked in, oh, they don't have nouns and verbs. I suppose that happens. Um, you know, so, so being surprised is crucial to understanding anything and di di digging deeper. And you can't be surprised if you don't have a theory. So whether the theory is good, bad, wrong, or right, you got to have a theory of something. Yeah, but, but maybe it could, it could work in the opposite way. Like if your theory describes verbs and then you find a language that doesn't have verbs, well, then you find a way of twisting, you know, twisting the, the, the interpretation of that language so it does have verbs. Yeah, and that's the most common result. <laughs> you know, they're not surprised, they're pissed. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going to make this fit. And actually, unfortunately, they're the ones who get very often get the most publicity because, or not publicity to the outside world, but they get the most respect within linguistics. Nothing pleases a theoretician more than to be shown how some recalcitrant data that doesn't seem to fit actually fits and makes the theory even stronger than it was. You know, the world for me would have been a lot different if I would have said the Pitaha doesn't seem to have recursion, but wait, yes, it does. And here's how it works. Totally surprising. So, so there's always that, you know, you can be surprised. And then with your surprise, you can say the theory is wrong. Um, or you can say uh, the theory requires a little tweaking. And that's how everybody works. Uh, some people work even more extreme. The data need a little tweaking. And that's where you really get into replicability crises. I don't know if it's the it would be the same as the observer effect. But like I'm wondering if if describing or let, let's say in an academic way discovering a language and then starting to describe it and creating a grammar for that language does it then change the language because then maybe you have um a tendency to become prescriptivist and say well i've written it down and it should do this so as language evolves you know as as language does you know then you say well you shouldn't be doing that because that's not you know, what language, what this language does. Well, where the, where the observer effect comes out, I mean, sure, if you write a grammar and you publish it and you're proud of it and you're kissing it, you know, my first little bookie and you uh, put it on your shelf and then you find some speaker who just violates half of what you said in the grammar, you're going to have to come up with a way to explain that to yourself and it can be good or bad. I mean, what you choose to do. Uh, somebody else can pick up the grammar and go to the field and say, Dan seems wrong here, but uh, Dan speaks the language a lot better than I do, so he must be right. Let's try to figure out. So, so that's one way. But the main way that the observer effect comes into play, in my experience, is when you're, let's say you're working bilingually in a group, and so you're talking to your native speaker teacher, and you ask them a question in Portuguese and say, in Portuguese we say X, and you give the word order of Portuguese and all the little all the bells and whistles of Portuguese, how do you say it in your language? You may get something artificial that looks too much like Portuguese and isn't really how they say it in their language. Um, and so in that sense, you are exercising um, an observer effect without realizing it. I have argued, and nobody listens to me because it takes too much time, that nobody should work except in the language you work, you're studying. You have to learn the language before you begin to study it to help minimize the observer effect. Um, if you're working in another language, you're getting people who are, you know, trying to please you, trying to make an honest day's wage by working with you. Um, 
and Portuguese can affect them, uh, even if they're a PhD in linguistics. It really, you know, doesn't uh, matter. One of my uh, favorite linguists is an Australian, Andrew Pauly, uh, from ANU, and he's worked on these very small uh, languages of Oceania, and uh, and he some of them are quite similar to Pitaha in in culture and things. His advantage is his, I, I was reading one of his grammars and I noticed that his native speaker uh, teacher was a PhD in linguistics. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's his, that can be an advantage or a disadvantage, but uh, you know, in that case, you're basically just helping this person write the grammar. You know, you're offering some assistance and, and it's a co-authored thing. Uh, the Pinaha help facilitate what I do, but if I, you know, and even there, I'll say, can I say this in Pitaha? And they say, yeah, you say it. Yeah, we don't talk like that. But you said I could say it. Yeah, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, um, how when, when you're writing a grammar, and, and especially if it's, you know, let's imagine it's, a, you know, it's geographically um, spread over a big distance, uh, and so you you might have this natural kind of separation over time of of of, of the language, like little little differences. How do you take that into account when you're saying that the language is like this? If if there's is that natural variation? That was the problem that Saussure. And one of the things that Saussure did, he introduced a theory. He was like um, Frege to person was in logic. Saussure was to Peirce in semiotics, although he called it semiology. But he invented the concept, he reintroduced the concept of signs at the same time, actually a few years later than Peirce. Um, very different theories. There are almost no basis of comparison whatsoever. Uh, up until that time, people had studied the historical evolution of language and variation. And Saussure said, we need to look at languages in slices of time. So he introduced the distinction between diachronic study and synchronic study. And diachronic study is this historical study that includes variation. Um, and synchronic study is what is the language like at this moment? Um, and that sort of excludes variation. Um, and that has, since Saussure, that has fortunately or unfortunately been the guiding uh, principle of all modern linguistics to study language in a slice of time, um, which means excluding variation, except maybe for a little footnote, you know, that uh, John said this, but I noticed that Bill can also say the following. Sociolinguists really don't like that. They want to study variation, and many cognitive scientists, Stephen Levinson, uh, uh, cognitive science in the Netherlands, said that uh, variation is where it's at. and and uh, that is very important. So if you're talking about, on the one hand, there are some things that don't vary. The theory of semantics of semiotics, that's not going to vary. But the number of signs people have and the grammars they have and the sound systems they have, these are always varying. Yeah, well, so, so, so also said that the sign is arbitrary, right? Yeah, yeah but, you know, that's wrong. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's, it's conventional. There's no reason that dog has, in English, has to be pronounced dog. It could have been perro uh, or cachorro or, you know, like it is in other languages. So in that sense, it's arbitrary because it didn't have to be, you didn't have to choose this form. 
but it's it's really not arbitrary in many other ways and, and Peirce would have never classified uh, meaning as arbitrary but um, it is conventional that's where culture comes in you list the you make a list of all the grammatical categories they have that's cultural that's not the fact that Pidaha doesn't have tense but it does have extremely rich aspectual distinctions that's a cultural distinction there's no reason they they can't have tense theoretically there's no reason they can have fewer aspects theoretically they simply choose to represent the world the in a particular way. So they have their inventory of signs. Every morpheme on a verb is a sign. That's, and so you get this recursive semi semiotics. And so Peirce definitely believed that all people think recursively and signs require recursive thinking. Uh, and he said this he's, as soon as he started working on signs back in the, the mid 1800s and the 1860s in particular. Um, but he would have never thought that that had to be a property of grammar because grammar is this little superficial interpretation of the signs and who knows what variation you might get there. So he would have never stuck his neck out, you know, for grammar. In fact, he, when he first started talking about universal grammar in 1865, you know, that's, he was the first person in the Western hemisphere, one of the first people since the 17th century France to, uh, start using the term universal grammar, uh, he abandoned it quickly because it just dealt with, uh, he really wasn't interested in grammar. He was interested in what eventually came to be known as speculative grammar, which was, wasn't grammar in the way that most linguists would think of it. It was a very uh, intricate set of logical principles for manipulating signs and reasoning and coming up with how things have to be said. So he worked a lot on syllogisms and the transformation of syllogisms. And then he, uh, very elegant stuff that predicted a third kind of reasoning that, that Aristotle and all logicians before Peirce had missed. You know, there's deduction, induction, and Peirce invented abduction, uh, which is like hypothesis formation. He invented the, uh, the first order logic and second order logic, and he worked in all of these things uh, because he was trying to understand how humans reason. And then how they talk, well, that's got to reflect how they reason, but you know, there's all kinds of variation in that. He would have found, uh, he did study languages. I mean, he, in his notebooks, he's got this entire treatment of Tagalog grammar. You know, he was interested in sound structure. He, he was an expert on, Elizabeth, on, on Shakespearean pronunciation. He was one of the world's leading experts on Egyptian hieroglyphics. So he was interested in all these things, you know, he picked them up in a day's reading, but he was, uh, he was up on all of these things. My God, so he was like a true polymath. He was probably the greatest polymath in, in known history. No one compared to him, not Newton. In terms of polymath, there was nothing like him in known history. There was, I just read a, a piece by, uh, of somebody who gave a talk and said that Galileo said this, and a philosopher of science stood up and said, I, I don't know where you're getting this stuff. Galileo never said that, I'm an expert on Galileo. And he said, well, I got it from Peirce. I guess I'll have to look into that more. He said, yeah, because Galileo never said that. So then he located at Harvard Library. I haven't been to this section of the library yet, but Peirce's 13-volume collection in Latin of all of Galileo's writings. Because Peirce wouldn't have read it in English translation. He read only the original. And then in volume, I think it's volume 13, but it could be another volume, he looked at, he found the passage he was looking for and underlined by Peirce 
is that exact phrase in Latin. Purse wins again. Uh, Man. He read everything in the original. He spoke so many languages. He was fluent in French, fluent in German, fluent in English, read all the classical languages. If you're reading through his notebooks, he'll switch to Greek for a while, then the next thing is Latin. And, and this was just effortless for him, like water off a duck's back. Do, do, do you think that maybe he had, um, you know, he was on the autism spectrum? He had like, you know, some sort of ability that was, that made him, you know, not just, not just a genius, but, you know, affected in some way? A lot of people have, have suggested that he did fall on the autism spectrum, that he at least had Asperger's and he had difficult time interacting socially. Um, he definitely had a difficult time interacting socially. It's not clear to me that we gain anything by attaching a label to that, but I wouldn't be surprised if he showed up today and took some tests and they said he's got Asperger's or something else. We do know that he had a hard time getting along socially. That's why he died penniless. And it's why the rest of us benefit from his poverty because he just worked all day every day on this brilliant stuff. You know, when I, whenever I think of Purse, I think of Stevie Winwood's line when he was 17 and I'm a man by Spencer Davis group. I just sit around creating all this groovy kind of stuff. I suppose, I suppose the, re- the reason I ask is because when you, when you sort of hear about somebody like that who is just so intellectually capable um, you know, especially at such a young age, you you have to attribute it to some kind of uh, disorder because otherwise it, it just shines a spotlight on, on everyone's shortcomings. You know? Yeah, we all want to think what an, what an asshole he probably was. But, uh, but in fact, he does seem to have been very normal in most things. He was quite the ladies' man. He was strikingly handsome. He was incredibly strong. He would, when he worked out... Um, Nobody but the circus strongman could lift more than he could. Um, he and and it, it's hard to measure today what he could lift because there were, there were different kinds of weight machines. But uh, but he worked out regularly. Uh, he uh, he he decided that any refined person should know how to discriminate wines. So he paid a sommelier to work with him over weeks so he could discriminate all wines. And he was very good at wines. Had very strong opinions. You know. Uh, and he loved uh, the theater. He acted in plays. I've just come across some correspondence where he's talking with the guy who's financing the play, and he and his wife are stars in the play. And so they had close friends. Um, he was a nice guy. He was a hard worker. He loved his wife. Um, just smarter than any person that has ever been come across, in my opinion, in history. Amazing. I mean, you talk about Newton. Newton was a brilliant polymath, but he spent all of his, you know, when he wasn't doing mathematics and physics, he was doing theology and he produced a bunch of shit. It was just total bunk what Newton produced. So Newton had these things he did, you know, brilliantly in this stuff that he did horribly. And Peirce, you can't find that. Everything he did was world-class. It was cutting edge. It was pioneering. In almost every field, you have to, you know, his job for 31 years was as a geophysicist. Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> he was an astronomer, physicist, biologist, chemist, um, psychologist. The first paper ever done in the United States on experimental psychology, probably the second paper ever done in the world on experimental psychology. 
he did it. And, and William James, who became known as the great father of American psychology, was never capable because he lacked the math skills of doing the experimental psychological work that Peirce did. What, what would you like to say to, to, to everybody out there who, who is trying to understand language through the lens of grammar? Uh, it's a very uh, important and admirable occupation. Um, if you have a theory, if you don't have a theory, you're wasting your time. And if you do have a theory, that's fine. Let it be a source of surprise. Um, defend it um, as well as you can, but be willing to say it's wrong uh, if you get to that point. Um, but everybody should be working with some set of theoretical assumptions. Mm -hmm.